So many times he had refused their claims. After he fed the 5,000, they're going to take him by force. They're going to make him king. But he withdrew away to the mountain and refused their desires to make him king. Two blind men follow him on another occasion with their incessant crying, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Do you believe I'm able to do this? He asked. Yes, Lord, was their unison reply. His hand touches their eyes. Their faith has made them whole. He wrinkles his brow. See there now, you tell no one about this. His warning was stern. He had a secret to keep. If people, if people knew that he was able to bring light to dark eyes, they might suspect he was the one, the Messiah. Shh, be quiet, he says. They had to keep a secret. But they told everyone they, they couldn't keep a secret. He wanted to be silent before. Why? Why now is he allowing them to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Though Jesus normally recalled at such displays of fanaticism, this time he just let them yell. He just let them yell. To the indignant Pharisees, he said, if I tell my disciples to be quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. Was the prophet from Galilee now being vindicated in Jerusalem? Look, look, the, the whole world is going after him, said one of the Pharisees. The triumphal entry has an aura of ambivalence. As I read the accounts this week together, what stands out is something of the slapstick nature of the affair. Perhaps a, a Roman officer gallops back to check the disturbance. It's Passover time. The security would be tight. While he attended processions in Rome where they did it right, the conquering general in a chariot of gold and the stallions pulling at the reins and the spike wheels glistening in the sun, behind him the polished armor of the officers carrying the banners of the nations they had defeated, and last behind that, the ragtag prisoners and slaves who've been captured at war to show you this is what happens when you go against Rome. But in Jesus's entry, the ragtag bunch was the parade. The lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. The officer finally finds the object of their adoration. It's a forlorn figure, and he's not on a stallion. He's on the colt of a donkey, and he's weeping as he enters Jerusalem. Just a few old coats draped over the back, serving as a saddle. Yes, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that would impress Rome and not even the kind of triumph that would impress the pilgrims in Jerusalem for very long. Disciples, still excited by the triumphal entry, 
They celebrate Passover with Jesus. There are so many surprises for the disciples in store during that evening as they move through the Passover ritual. John begins the story in his gospel by saying that God had put all things under his power. Jesus, knowing that God had put all things under his power, he starts with a statement of power, and then he goes to a picture of absurdity. He takes off his outer garment, he ties up his robe, he takes a towel, pours the water, and begins to wash feet. What a strange way for the guest of honor to act during a final meal with his friends. What an incomprehensible behavior for a ruler who would momentarily announce, I bestow upon you a kingdom. In those days, foot washing was such a lowly task that not even a Jewish slave could be made to do it. Peter, Peter blanches at the provocation. M. Scott Peck says foot washing stands out as one of the most monumental moments in the life of the Messiah. Until that moment, the whole idea in life was to get on top, to be king of the hill and stay on top or to go up higher. And now the one who was teacher, ruler, and master, one who was already on top, decided to take off his robe, take up the towel, and go to the bottom. In that one act, Jesus reversed all the social order on earth, hardly comprehending what was happening. Even his own disciples, they were horrified by the behavior. That same evening, there's a dispute amongst the disciples. When you come to your kingdom, can we sit in the right, the left, and who's the greatest? And back and forth, there is competition and ambition. And Jesus knows it, and he says, the greatest among you shall be the youngest, and the master among you shall be the servant. That's when he said, I confer upon you a kingdom, a kingdom based on foot washing and service and humility. And that the disciples had seen a tableau of what he meant and following that example of foot washing has not gotten any easier 2,000 years hence. Surely not I, Lord. No, not I, Lord. No, it's not I, Lord. Jesus dropped the bombshell that one of his 12 was going to betray him. Not I. No, no, not I, Lord. You know it's not I. It seemed like an odd thing. This was a rabbi with his closest hand-chosen disciples in a private closed-door meeting. How could he say one of them was going to betray him? A few moments after that bombshell, Judas gets up and leaves, and they think he's going to pay a bill or get some supplies or make a charitable gift. Maybe an errand for the group. Judas you know, that used to be a common name, but now it's disappeared. No parent, no parent in the nursery is going to name their child over the biggest traitor in all of human history. And you read the Gospels, what stands out about Judas is not his uniqueness, but his ordinariness. Like the other disciples, he had been hand-chosen by Jesus. As a treasure, he was a leader and had the trust of the entire group. And even there at that Passover meal, he was seated close to Jesus, close enough to dip in the bowl. The gospel contains no hints that Judas had been a mole. 
infiltrating the inner circle to plan his perfidy. If Judas alone is a betrayer, he's certainly not alone and dis disappointing the Messiah. When it becomes clear to his followers that his kingdom goes to the cross, that his throne is going to be a cross, each one of them disappears into the darkness. Jesus is going to leave his disciples there disturbed by all this foolish talk about where I'm going now you cannot follow. Like I said to the Jews, I say to you now, where I'm going you can't follow me. Well, Peter in fact says, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about, but let me assure you of one thing. I will follow you all the way to my death. Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning. And Jesus in John's gospel at this point in the Passion account tries to comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. You believed in God, now believe in me. For if I go, I will prepare a place and come again that where I am, there you may also be, and you know the way. The upstairs room in Jerusalem was stuffy with the smell of lamb and bitter herbs and sweaty bodies. They get up and they arise and go to the cool of the Garden of Gethsemane. There were the olives in full bloom. The night was fragrant with the blossoms. And outside of the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and the Passover there in the cool of the garden with the olive trees, they get sleepy and tired and they drift away in slumber. Jesus Jesus, however, he feels no such peace. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And Matthew says he is deeply distressed. Both writers use plaintive words to describe when they say, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Often Jesus wanted to be by himself and sometimes he would send the disciples off in a boat and he would go up into the mountains to be with the Father, but not now. No, this time he doesn't want to be alone. He wants the comfort of the presence of his disciples. By instinct, we humans want someone by our side. The night before the surgery, just someone to show up and be present for us. Or in the, the nursing home, when the death looms large, someone to hold a hand. We need the reassurance of human presence. Solitary confinement is the worst punishment that our species has ever devised. I detect in these gospel accounts that Jesus really is human. He really wants their presence. There's a depth of loneliness that Jesus has not yet encountered. And when the disciples fail him and do not stay awake, he does not conceal his disappointment. Could you not stay with me in prayer for an hour? Is it possible that this is the first time He's afraid to be alone with the Father. 
Take this cup from me, he prays. He pled. This is no pious formal prayer. This is anguish, earnestly praying to the Father. (coughs) His sweat becomes drops of blood. What was the struggle exactly? Was it the fear of the pain of physical death? Of course, he's fully human. Crucifixion is horrible and unthinkable. But it's more than that, too. He knows at this moment he'll be in a state of God-forsakenness. At his core, Gethsemane represents unanswered prayer, at least not answered the way Jesus wants it answered. For, like some of your prayers, the cup of suffering was not removed. See them there at a distance now on the hillside. (coughs) The world has rejected Jesus, and they are coming to take him away. It's a torch-lit parade as they snake with their glow down the hill there at Gethsemane. And during those prayers, Jesus had met the stone wall of God's response. John Howard Yoder speculates what would have happened if God had given in to Jesus' prayer, take this cup from me. Jesus was by no means powerless. You remember he had 72,000 angels ready to go. Why, the kingdom could come slowly like a mustard seed that grows, or it could have come like a hailstorm. And on that count, it could have come like a hailstorm if the angels had intervened for Jesus. But if they had... There would have been no messy business of redemption. There would have been no salvation for us. There would have been no church and no church history. In fact, the cup was the very reason that Jesus had come to earth. For it is in the coming of this kingdom, here is the man who says, love your enemies. The man whose righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, the one who being rich becomes poor, the one who gives his robe to those who ask for his cloak, who prays for those who despite him and use him. The cross is not some detour, detour away, a hurdle on the way the kingdom. Rather, it is the kingdom come. The cross is the kingdom. It must occur. And Jesus knows it. After several hours of torturous prayer, the will of the Father and the will of the Son become one. In fact, Jesus himself will say, did not the Son of Man have to suffer these things? He woke his slumberous friends one last time and marched boldly through the darkness right towards those who were snaking down through the hill to arrest him. 600 Roman soldiers. That's how many showed up. 600 soldiers for a rabbi and his small band of followers. They're afraid he'll run like the rest of the rebels, so they come with full force. And Jesus approaches them and asks, Who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus and Nazarene, and he says, I am he. 
They fall back in the power of that pronouncement. Why, when he says, I am he, he is like Jehovah of the Old Testament who says to Moses there in Exodus, I am who I am. I am he. It was a divine proclamation that he was God. He was the son of God. He was the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And then the scuffle breaks out. Right there in the band of torchlights, watch Peter draw his sword and hack away at Malchus's ear. And Jesus comes between Peter and his sword and Malchus's bleeding head and heals Malchus. He says, Peter, put your sword away. If you choose to live by the sword, by the sword you will die. And don't you know, Peter, just one command, 72,000 angels would come and defend me. Now look at the odds, 600 Roman soldiers against Jesus and 11 disciples. The odds were really tilted, weren't they? Until you see with new eyes in the text that along with Jesus' disciples were the, this host of army. He is the Lord of hosts, ready at one utterance to go to war for the Son of God. Yes, yes, it was lopsided. It was lopsided in the favor of Jesus. His eyes turn away from Peter. Am I a thief? There I was every day in the temple. I was seated and teaching like a rabbi, you could have arrested me, and now you come to me like a thief with clubs and torches and an army? Why didn't you just pick me up then? They bring the ropes. They bind his hands. And all the disciples run to save their own necks. In fact, there's one young disciple, maybe it's John Mark. Someone grabs his cloak and won't let go, and he wiggles out of it, and he runs. His heart is pounding. He thinks he hears footsteps following him. He runs all the way to the creek down to the bottom of the valley, and he turns and realizes he's naked, but he's escaped, and he's alone. Mark was ashamed of his fear. Shamed when the, the enemy just showed up that he ran. And John Mark flees naked in that night. Peter follows Jesus at a distance. At the door there, there's a slave girl, a servant girl. Hey, aren't, aren't you? You're one of his, he's a, you're one of his, right? Oh, no, no. I don't know what gave you that idea. He said, or there while they're warming themselves around the fire, the night is cold and Peter joins them and someone says, it's your accent, sir. You're from Galilee too, aren't you? You're one of his. No, 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 I'm not. And then finally, Malchus's cousin, the one who had had his ear chopped off. Now, he, he, knew, he knows who top, chopped off his cousin's ear. And he sees Peter. He says, Peter, I, I know you're the one. You are one of his followers. You are. And Peter curses and says, I never even knew him. And then the cock crows. It's Luke's gospel that tells us, not only Luke's gospel tells us this, 
It's a detail. I'm glad Luke gave it to us because the others left it out. The cock crows and Peter and Jesus turn and look at each other. And then Peter recalls. I said I'd, I'd die for him and he said, by the time the rooster crows, I'll deny him three times. He's a prophet. Then Matthew 26, 56b. Turn over to, to Matthew 26, 56b. Meaning the second half of Matthew 26, 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Judas betrays and Peter denies and John Mark flees naked. And then all the disciples left him and fled. And yet every one of them was sure on that evening when he said, it's going to get rough. They would stand by him. When you are most confident of your devotion to Jesus, it's when you need to be most nervous. It's when you fall. Ask, ask them all. That's when you'll fall. Every day we are tempted to deny him. The world does not know him. The world is not comfortable around those who know him. And they will tempt you. And they will chip away at you. And they will look for a weak moment. And you could fall. You could. Unless you lean on him. I know of no more poignant contrast than that between Peter and Judas both were leaders in the group of the disciples. Both saw and heard wondrous things. They both saw that the lame had leapt and the blind had seen and the dead had been raised. They'd all been through that dithery cycle of hope and fear and disillusionment about whether he is or not the Messiah and what his kingdom will look like. And as the stakes were increased, they both denied him. But there the similarities break off. Judas is remorseful and apparently unrepentant. He accepted the logical consequences of his deed and he takes his own life because he's miserable, miserable for having wronged the Lord. And he goes down as the greatest traitor in history. He was unwilling to receive what Jesus had come to give him. And Peter is just as humiliated. But he's still open to Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness. And Peter went on to lead the revival in Jerusalem. And that revival of the kingdom and the message of the new king did not stop until it reached Rome. In fact, it did not stop until it reached you today. Peter, Judas, which disciples shall we be?
for Easter is just around the corner. Let us pray. Oh God, as we gather this Friday and as we gather a week from today, as we psychologically and as a community go through the passion of our Lord as we began today with Palm Sunday, may we experience his death afresh and anew. May we realize the, the price of his gift. And may we gather in this room and declare he is alive. We're forgiven. And we don't have to be afraid of the enemy of death anymore. Amen.